podcast with James and Jane. Hi, this is James. I wanted to let you know that as well as these podcasts, we deliver at least one free online seminar every month that you're welcome to attend wherever you are in the world. You can learn more about them and register for them via our website, www.worldofwork.io. That's www.worldofwork.io. Hello, this is James. And this is Jane. And here we are again with another episode of the World of Work podcast. Who are we speaking to today, Jane? So today we're talking to Phil Tmeyer, uh, who teaches history at an American university, specifically around the LGBTQI plus community. Yeah, that's right. So he's an assistant professor at Kansas State University, and he focuses on um, the history of feminism, the history of gender rights, and all that kind of stuff. Um, So today we're we're lining up a really fun conversation with him. We're going to use our time with him to explore the history of uh, the gay community, uh, predominantly in the US, but a little bit more broadly as well. Yeah, and related to work, right? So his his particular interest, he's written a book about uh, the work history of gay male flight attendants, yeah. which is actually really interesting. Yeah, it's, it's called Plain Queer, and we'll speak about yeah, that. Yeah, we'll talk about detail. it. We talk about it in the episode, and he explains a little bit about it. Anyway, it's just, it's quite a fun way to understand some of the challenges that communities of interest and communities that may have been discriminated against in the past have experienced work rights. Okay, so here we are, and today we get the great opportunity to speak to Phil T. Meyer, who's an assistant professor of history at Kansas State University. Um, and today we're going to be speaking about the LGBT community and some history in that community, specifically focusing on things to do with legal rights. Um, but before we get into that, uh, Phil, would you be able to introduce yourself to the audience and say a little bit about yourself and your background? Sure, James. Uh, as, you, as you mentioned, I'm uh, teaching at a university in a history department. I've been hired to do 20th century U.S. gender and sexuality history. And so most of my teaching is devoted to uh, the history of feminism and the history of LGBTQ rights. Um, And my book uh, that came out um, about six years ago is actually a history of the flight attendant industry, especially looking at male flight attendants through the years. It's called Plain Queer, P-L-A-N-E, Queer. Um, And it basically looks at the whole kind of history of aviation in America from its very beginnings in the 1920s as a workplace that has always found a diversity of sexualities in its midst, especially gay men who um, uh, through the years have been heavily represented in this field. So that's kind of the set of interests that I bring to this conversation today. That's really cool. And, and you know, I was going to come on and mention your book. First of all, I think the title's great. Um, it's really good to bring a bit of fun to, a, to to this type of topic. And I think the things that you're covering there are interesting, and, and I'd love to come on to those in a bit more detail in a couple of minutes. Um, before we do that, can I, can I just chuck out a, a bit of a question, which is around, you know, what the community is. When we talk about the LGBT community or QI plus community or, or however we frame it, um, in your view, could you explain what community we talk about when we talk about these types of um, employment rights? I know it's a big question, right? Sure. I mean, I think maybe this is where being a historian helps because um, this, what we now call LGBTQ plus or, or however we identify the community itself is actually a collection of various communities, right? That historically speaking, uh, a lesbian community developed um, not necessarily amongst the same people as the gay men who are developing, as the transgender community that we're developing. So all these folks have different histories and different senses of belonging that mm-hmm. through the years have been kind of clumped together, um, mostly because of discrimination, <laughs> um, yeah. because they were experiencing a set of laws, religious attitudes, and social attitudes that were meant to kind of drive them out of the mainstream society. And so over time, we've started to identify as a large community of lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and others um, who have been ostracized. That's really cool. And and that's um, framing it to some extent as a community against whom uh, discrimination has taken place is a really interesting 
Yeah, I um, think that's probably you... the, the thing we most have in common with each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, there's a tremendous amount of diversity. And I, I think you'll experience this in whatever workplace you're in. Um, there's a tremendous amount of diversity amongst the queer employees, co-workers that we have, right? Um, it's not to be assumed at all that uh, just because... I'm G and someone else is T and someone else is Q that we're, we're going to be best friends. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I mean, it's just, it's, it's really interesting. You phrase it that way. Cause we talk, um, I, I worked for a long time in sport and we talk about this group in this community, which of which I happen to belong and the disabled community in a similar way, as mm-hmm. in they've had to band together because they faced the similar issues, but actually as those, as those issues change, so that community and the, the sort of bonds between that community change too, because you're always, you were always pushing against something together. Yeah. And that, that certainly is something we talk about a lot in sport because they, it's the things that it's really sad, but it's the things that unite us. So the attitudes and the issues are out from other people and other organizations. Right. Yeah. I think uh, many of us are, especially in the United States are, are happy to be lone rangers on so many things. Until we we realize that we're yeah. up against higher powers that don't yes, want us yes. to excel. <laughs> <laughs> well, that makes sense. Well, let's um let's jump in and run through a bit of a history. And and I'd be interested in getting uh, from you if you'd be willing to do it a mm-hmm. high level overview of, of some of the large changes around um, I guess legality and discrimination that have taken place over um, I don't know I guess your your book starts in the uh, the 1930s i believe or the late sure. 20s yeah maybe from that time period and, and just talk through some of the, the key events in um in changes to discrimination and uh employment rights or, or whatever you think is interesting in that space is that okay sure sure so cool james you and i were talking earlier that we're both sort of aviation geeks and yes uh, and the you know the first commercial flight that had a flight attendant on it in the united states at least was 1929 and so that's right. where I begin my book. But it's also not a bad place to, I mean, to begin a sort of a queer history as well. Obviously, mm-hmm. now there's been things that go way further back in terms of um, gay sexual practices and, and, and laws that have been written to kind of outlaw homosexuality and so forth. Um, uh, religious records that go obviously way back to the book of Leviticus. Um, but, um, but in the, by the 1920s in the United States and, and in the UK and um, the rest of the industrialized world, at least what we'd seen by that moment is that there are clusters, especially in cities of communities of men and women, but uh, more so men because men had access to public spaces that there's communities developing by that time of people sort of, living together and socializing together around their sexual preferences, right? Around Mm -hmm. the fact that they're um, people seeking sexual partners of the same sex, right? Um, This is at least the the story for lesbians and gay men. It's a little bit different for transgender uh, individuals. Um, And so by the, the, the 1920s, you start to have, you know, parts of cities, parts of New York, parts of London, that are um, where gay men and and to a a lesser extent, lesbian women are clustering. You have nightlife venues that are devoted to these kind of social outlets for these these men and women. And what we would start to kind of call a community is arising with numbers that are vast enough to have things like small publications or newspaper columns writing about them. you know, yeah. even the rise of pornography uh, yeah, yeah. becomes sort of, it becomes mass marketed to people with same-sex attractions for the first time around the 1920s. Mm-hmm. Um, so you've got this kind of subculture that's developing, and it's a little bit off the grid, right? I mean, this is not something that religious authorities or political authorities uh, at the time are condoning in any way, shape, or form. But it's sort of just happening generically, given the uh, the independence that people are experiencing as they move to cities in the in- moment of industrial kind of industrialization, really. Yeah. So that's where it all starts. And um, I'm kind of always curious about this question of work, right? Um, mm-hmm. how, did, how did we move from a community that sort of 
building up on the edges and especially is expressed in primarily social life, right? It's the gay bar. It's the, yeah. it's the ball party that uh, is thrown in, in places like New York on, on certain weekends. Um, it's the, you know, the, the, the lesbian book reading group in a middle-class home that's just women who find themselves attracted to other women, right? Um, so it's all kind of, you know, it's about social life. And, uh, and I, as I was writing my book, it occurred to me, well, these people must be doing something during the day to make at least a little bit of money as well. (laughs) You've got to afford all that social life, don't you? Right. So is there, is there a work history to the, to, to the gay world? Is there a work history to, to the lesbian world? Right. And, and that's kind of where I started. And I started kind of thinking, well, where could we possibly find, you know, a gay workplace? And it occurred to me, yeah. <laughs> because I do love airplanes, it occurred to me that, you know, virtually every time I walk onto a plane, and this is true from the time I started flying in the 1970s, there yeah. was someone who kind of stood out as, I mean, at first just sort of a gender maverick, a man doing a job that it really is what a woman was supposed to be doing is what I was yeah, taught yeah. growing up. And, um, and as it turns out, uh, a lot of these, these men, um, identify as gay. And, and, uh, I think, uh, it, I wasn't the only customer in the 1970s, 1980s, kind of looking, looking at these men doing women's work and almost sort of presuming, right. Oh, you must be gay. Right. Because you're doing yeah. something outside the norm of masculinity. So, uh, that's kind of where the book came from, but it also has really allowed me to sort of keep that focus on work in my own writing about the LGBT community. Yeah, that's a fascinating place to start. And, and I think there's some really interesting things in there. Um, if you, if you, you know, think about where we were in the 1920s, say 1929 or the early uh-huh. 1930s, what were the, I guess, the rights of the gay and lesbian community at that time? Yeah. So when we talk about rights now, we're moving into the sort of the legal realm. What does the, the state offer? you as a citizen, uh, any protections, any, um, any, you know, on, on the other hand, uh, you know, is there something where the state has chosen to discriminate against you? And yeah. what's, what's interesting in the twenties and thirties is that, um, honestly, it seems, and this isn't just my work, uh, but the work of other historians, it seems that the state is becoming aware of, homosexuality as a thing as a as a an identity that is sort of so definitive for certain people that they're choosing to live in parts of the city based on that identity they're choosing to socialize in parts of the city based on that identity and you know to some extent they're choosing to work in certain jobs based on their same-sex desire, right? Yeah. Um, But this is sort of a gradual awareness, not just for the individuals going through it, but for the state as well. Like Uh these small subcultures are becoming more prevalent, but they, you know, if if there's something super new in a society, the government's generally pretty slow to react to it. And so what, what I found in the 1930s is that there were no official restrictions <laughs> placed yeah, on okay. on, um, on gay or lesbian employees per se, but that doesn't mean you know, and, and I don't have proof of this from my own record search, but um, that doesn't mean that there weren't people who were deprived of a job because of they course. they were gay or because they were lesbian or because they looked different or acted different or had their hair different. You know, we can presume that that went on. Um, yeah. By the 1950s, though, those laws are in place, right? Uh, The state kind of said, oh, wow, yeah, we do have what they would term a homosexual menace in the United States. And we need, as a government, to prevent them from having any public expression. So it's really by the 50s that we start to see the first sort of legal discrimination uh, based on sexual um, orientation. And what what did that look like? Was that as simple as um, the government saying to companies, you cannot employ these people in public facing uh, roles? Or was it was it more subtle than that? It was um, 
You know, there's actually the, the government using its role, the federal government here in the United States, using its role as an employer, right? As this, uh, using the vast kind of federal government bureaucracy, especially the Department of Defense, the State Department that m makes our foreign policy here in the U.S., um, the Department of Labor, kind of, um, there was actually a, a really interesting tie-in with the Cold War and communism <laughs> when these laws were written. Yeah, okay. So what happened is that there was a, a Senate special committee here in the United States that was run by kind of fierce anti-communists. And, um, yes. and, you know, if any of you kind of remember U.S. history, there was a Senator Joseph McCarthy who was hmm. this, yes, this, yes. this guy. It's one of the few bits they teach here. Right, yes, yes, exactly. Yes. McCarthyism is out there, right? We know. We he, know. he has this uh, speech that he gives uh, in 1950, I believe it was, maybe 49, where he says, I have in my hand this list of 205 known communists working in the State Department. And everyone kind of is like, <gasps> you know, so they start these FBI investigations to find out who these communists are. And they can't find any communists, but they find a lot of people with uh, men with police records working for the State Department. They'd been arrested for same-sex activity, right? Sure. Um, and in the moment, as, as the Senate got this report back, it was like, wow, we have a lot of homosexuals working in the U.S. government. They started to say, well, is this a good thing? And they, so they developed this report that basically said, uh, actually, this is a bad thing because homosexuals can be compromised by communists, right? Because they're, they're, they're participating in this kind of um, sexually scandalous type of activity that is illegal at the time, right? We had sodomy laws both in the yeah. UK and the US at the time, um, that this is blackmailable material. And if a, a Soviet spy were to get their hands on these people, they could convert yes. them into spies, right? So yeah, yeah. The, the, the long and the short of it is that the Senate recommends to the president to outlaw the employment of any homosexual from any federal government job. And when Dwight Eisenhower becomes president in um, early 1953, he signs an executive order in his first 100 days that outlaws the employment of homosexuals by any federal government institution, right? And this yeah, remains okay. the law into the 1970s in this country. And when you've got the federal government setting that precedent, then what happens with other companies is they say, well, these are best practices, right? Um, that we should also not be having homosexuals work for us, right? What ends up happening for, for especially the gay men, the ones that I, I kind of am most familiar with from my studies, is that they, they try to find jobs, right? that are basically sort of like independent contractor jobs, right? So think of mm -hmm. a hairdresser. Yeah. Who, who rents a chair from a yes, salon, okay. right? Um, he His contract with that salon can be canceled if they find out that he's gay, if they care that he's gay, right? Yeah. But he still can go to the next salon because he's basically self-employed, right? Yeah. Okay. Um, so there's a, a huge kind of uh, incentive by the 1950s for gays and lesbians um, – to, to not work in a kind of with an employer who's part of a larger organization. It's the best would be to be self-employed or to kind of be rich, you know? <laughs> <To> <laughs> well, that's always well. a good, good option, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so, so the federal banning of employment based mm -hmm. on um, perceptions of um, being turned and being counteragent and, and some of those things led to some changing in the employment sought within the game community, moving more towards that self-employed right. framework where possible. Um, and, and what goes on from them? So, so that's kind of, I guess, the start of the fifties and the progression through the fifties. Right. When does, when does that start to change? When does there uh, become a bit of a pushback or change in public opinion or change in legislation around discrimination based on, sexuality in the u.s sure um i mean so these these federal laws now kind of work standards uh not to employ homosexual homosexuals it meshes pretty well with the mainstream culture at the time right yeah. <laughs> you have religious authorities saying that 
that homosexuality is sinful. You have uh, yeah. psychologists in the 1950s saying that homosexuality is a disease, right, a yeah. mental illness. Um, and you, you also have this this kind of, at least in America, a strong, at least in the middle class suburbs, a strong move towards conformity around having uh, your house and yard and white picket fence and 3.2 yes, yes. children and you know all that yeah, stuff yeah, quarter acre lot all that and stuff it's and being re- reinforced from everything from the laws to like the television shows that yeah. people are watching in this in the 50s so the yeah. the underlying message is if you're queer at the time you hide it you go underground and you live in a closet right and in terms of work what that meant is that you weren't mm-hmm. really supposed to have a public expression of your queer identity, right? In order to stay employed, you had to kind of pass as straight. Um, Except in certain kind of exceptional professions, whether it be the fashion industry, whether it be Broadway, whether it be um, hairdressing, or things like uh, companies like the airlines um, that were hiring some male stewards in the 1950s still, um, basically kind of said, you know, they may or may not be gay. We don't really know if they decided to pursue it. They could have found out that many of these men were gay, but we don't care. You know, we're just going to like, if they do their job, right. Yeah. And if they do it well, um, then we're fine. Right. And, yeah. um, and this is also kind of the power of labor unions, um, which right. <laughs> not all of us are fans of, but I happen to be sure. supportive, especially seeing the history of how many employees facing kind of discrimination based on gender and sexuality in, the, in a world where the law wasn't willing to protect them, a labor union was. Not by That's embracing kind of gay identity themselves, because they also struggled with homophobia in their own ranks. But the yeah. principle of firing someone who is qualified for the job really yeah. goes against the print, the fundamental principle of a labor union, right? Yeah. yeah. So what we That's find true. by the by this through the sixties and seventies is that um, some lucky gay men and lesbians have found a workplace where they're at least tolerated, if not accepted, right? And that mm-hmm. starts to change even more so. As homosexuality comes out of the closet uh, as a social movement by the 1970s, I think the Stonewall riots might be one um, moment in that um, maybe some people who are vaguely familiar with uh, LGBT history might be familiar with. That was the riots in 1969 in New York City where um, patrons of a gay bar... um, and it was not just gay men, but it was also transgender folks uh, and lots of people of color um, just got sick of of the the police coming into their into their bars and and closing it down and and arresting people and harassing people. So they fought back against the cops, against police brutality. Yeah. Yeah. And it was kind I'm of not, a galvanizing moment. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say I'm not sure if you're aware, but in the UK, one of the biggest uh, sort of advocacy charities for uh, gay rights is called Stonewall. Oh wow! Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's become a, a a universal thing. You know, in late June of every year, uh, cities around the world, right, have these sort of gay pride parades. Well, those are basically they 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 typically choose late June, uh, at least in the big ones, New York, San Francisco, um, to commemorate Stonewall, to commemorate those riots. Um, so the pride parades that, that we're familiar with and that so many companies have embraced around the world are actually, um, sort of memorials of the Stonewall riots from six. Yeah. And it's, it's quite often, uh, cause I grew up in the UK and it Stonewall, the Stonewall riots are used in a real, as a way to educate the LGBTQI plus community here. And particularly during, so we had something called Section 28, uh, which came out in 86, which kind of set, pushed our rights backwards, where the government said you couldn't be in a public employment position and be open about your sexuality. Uh-huh. So all the teachers were not even allowed to talk to, uh, so if a student came to you and said, I am, 
you know, I'm, I'm experiencing some questions about myself. They weren't allowed to discuss it and they could be prosecuted if they were. Even if they were straight, they still weren't allowed to talk about it. Right. So Section 20, during that period, uh, our Stonewall charity used lots of the uh, history around the American movement in the late 60s and early 70s to try and inform the general public and make, recognize that we needed to move forward. Interesting. Yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the interconnectedness. And again, we, we, I think in some ways we, we think of a global queer community now um, that are all these micro communities, right? And sometimes inspired by, by each other. Um, and it's really an interesting choice that um, folks in the UK maybe in this moment where they couldn't be so vocal about their own history, sort of adopted the yeah. U.S.'s. Yeah, definitely. So, so it feels like Stonewall is a bit of a turning point, um, to say the least, in both public perception and, um, I guess, strength and voice and, and uh, opinion within the, the gay community. Um, if we step forward from Stonewall, then what happens over the coming decades? If that's 1969, what happens over, I guess, the 70s or the 80s that changes the rights of, uh, broadly speaking, the gay community? Yeah, a lot of it culturally is, uh, it starts culturally, uh, the kind of the, the, the baby boomers who were uh, way more progressive in many cases than their parents growing up yeah. in the late 60s. Um, started to kind of tolerate or embrace homosexuality. People like David Bowie who were really... Yeah, important. yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, that, you know, by the 70s, there was a, a queer public persona, several queer public personas sure. that were really never given permission to be queer in public in the 50s and 60s. Um, yeah. If you think of the, the really troubled sort of personalities of say Liberace in the 1950s who had to insist that he 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 was straight but he was just living with his mother right he just hadn't found found the right girl yet right yeah yeah yeah. by the story throughout history the 70s it's quite different um in a good way right um what that does is it creates a, a snowball effect where more and more um regular citizens are are realizing that maybe it's not the end of the world if there's a public place for LGBT folks, right? Um, uh, over time, uh, I believe it's the Nixon administration in the 70s that gets rid of the outright ban on the federal government um, hiring homosexuals. Um, in 1973, the psychological community um it removes homosexuality from its list of mental disorders, right? Um, so you can start to see by the 70s, there's a, a kind of a, a change in the level of acceptance um, and in the permission for gays to be more public than they had been before. Uh, it's still obviously uh, very much a battleground space. And, and certainly in the United States, when what we know of as the religious right um, becomes uh, more of a fixture of American politics by 1980 when Ronald Reagan becomes president as and and um, the religious right is a, a, a fundamental part of his winning coalition um, yeah. then every kind of conflict every kind of struggle that LGBTQ people are going to experience getting more um, acceptability in public is going to be fought back against. Um, sure. By particularly by the religious right, um, we we talk about it as uh, defending our space at the moment over uh-huh. here. So we feel like they made like we made loads of progress in the nineties and two thousands, and right now it feels like uh, politically it's very much about laying claim to what we've achieved and trying yeah. to not prevent Hold the on. erosion. Hold on to what's been won and don't let them. Yeah, and not it. and rather than push forward. And I think I think one of the really things I really like about the British community, and I don't even find it in the US, is whilst they're doing that, they're also recognizing internationally that other communities are way, way behind where yeah. we are and trying to figure out how they can share what they've learned. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think the, the folks that I talk to who are kind of active in queer activism here as well are would just be delighted to. Um, I mean, obviously, we, we, we need to keep pushing forward. And at the same time, 
this is not a, an optimistic moment politically. <laughs> <laughs> it's yeah. a new decade, right? That's yeah, what we're I two days saying. in, just for the <laughs> audience. It's yeah. the 2nd of January on 2020, right? I mean, right. <laughs> who yeah. knows what the 2020 <laughs> Roaring 20. So, so when you studied these attendants, yes. what, what is what's their experience like as it changes? Because obviously it sounds like the industry as a whole was a little bit more, well, we don't care. To some extent, we don't care what they do as long as what they do in their private lives. But but will their experience over those 60s and 70s really have changed of work? Will they have, would they have experienced discrimination, for example, from from their customers? Or would Um, it just... Is it not? Does it not work like you, that? You know what's what? What I found fascinating um, when I wrote the book, I just assumed that that progress was going to be this kind of nice linear thing that we were going to start. I was going to start my book in the '30s, and it was going to be bad. And I knew the yeah. '50s were still going to be bad, but then it just gets better, 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 better. Right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> That's not true. Yeah. Um, the '30s were, you know, because it was so invisible, and and it really hadn't been uttered as kind of a a bad thing yet. '30s were kind of okay, and then the '50s yeah. were bad, and then the '70s were pretty good, and then came the AIDS crisis in the '80s, and it was horrible. Mm, um, yeah. And it really was only the 90s and the 2000s when um, companies, HR departments and companies started to say, you know what, these are our employees, we're going to embrace them. And in fact, we, we might even find that they're a good marketing tool to this sort of yeah. uh, upper middle class LGBT market, right? The gay dollar was some, some, some sort of mystical thing. But so... Um, the formative experiences of the people I interviewed, um, especially the ones who started working in the 1970s, were around the AIDS crisis, and and they were awful. Um, the the at the time, uh, especially in the early to mid 80s, um, people scientists took a couple years to figure out that this was a sexually transmitted uh, virus. It was relatively difficult, and here I'm talking about in terms of epidemiological terms, relatively difficult to acquire and to pass on from person to person. Mm-hmm. Um, so we all knew that, like, um, you know, by 85, people knew, and, and you could hear it on TV, that uh, AIDS was passed, the, the virus HIV was passed through uh, fluids, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, and then no one wanted to be like the outspoken kind of clarifying force by which we mean, you know, the <laughs> genital secretions, right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and blood, those are the only two that can really give it to you. And then, but isn't it in your saliva? Yes, but it, you can't get it, you know? Um, and so what this, this kind of confusion and this lack of, of forthrightness, um, in kind of public pronouncements meant that every time a, a customer saw someone who was gay, they were afraid of catching AIDS from a sneeze, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, and so uh, these flight attendants and the unions and the airlines who um, they were employed by um, would get sort of hate mail. I was on wow. a flight from New York to LA and I know my flight attendant was gay because he was a man, right? And he served me my meal, right? And I was afraid of getting AIDS, right? Um, and then, you know, of course, uh, some of these men did contract the illness um, and sometimes would would visually kind of visibly show signs of being sick with HIV AIDS, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then it became a question of, for the airlines, do we let these people work yeah. with visible signs of HIV, AIDS, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that's where it had to go into the courts, right? If you've seen the Tom Hanks movie, Philadelphia, um, about whether Tom Hanks's character is allowed to keep working even though he's HIV positive, um, yeah. that's really... A, the, the kind of the legal cases behind the Philadelphia case, there were several in the, in the country, but um, some of the key ones were actually male flight attendants who. Right. I'd never knew. See, so that, that film was formative for me mm-hmm. in 
I'm beginning to understand, I don't know, the history of the whole whole rights movement. Uh, but I had no idea that it came from, in part, some male flight attendants. But that yeah. makes total sense, right? Because it's very visible. It's very public. Yeah. Everyone's hyped up about germs and sterile at- atmospheres you know, on planes anyway. And they're tense anyway because yeah. they don't like flying quite a lot. Yeah. So you get this kind of, uh, you get people traveling quite a lot who are a little bit stressed anyway. Yeah, My experience, I used to work in the travel industry. And you do get this. You get people in a heightened sense of stress. Yes. And yeah, <laughs> I really do. I that myself. It's fun, right? It's yeah. total fun. And they, they deny it as well. I don't, I'm not scared of flying. Yeah. I'm definitely yeah, yeah. not. Um, so of course, but of course that makes total sense. Wow. Yeah. yeah okay. to give you, so, so these cases that the flight attendants brought, they were before the Philadelphia cases and they were instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, in establishing a, a legal precedent to show you the, the kind of the mix, it, what we get in the United States is you get, you know, one step forward, two steps back, or when you get a victory, it's kind of tainted with the kind of yes, but still. Yes, so yes, yes. what ends up happening with these flight attendants uh, who sue and they, the courts uh, rule that they do indeed have the right to work, even if they're, mm. you know, if they have what we would call KS lesions, these kind of, it was a, a, a side symptom of, of people with AIDS were getting a, a skin cancer called mm-hmm. KS that were these purple lesions. They could continue to work if they had KS. Um, and the airline had to kind of recognize their ability to continue to work. Um, but we're so adamant about refusing these people to work that they literally paid them to stay home. Yeah. Right. And so we have, uh, apparently uh, other flight attendants have told me that um, there may still be people on the payroll at say United airlines who are getting paid not to work (laughs) because the airline, you know, was intent on just paying these people until they died effectively and some of them have never died, right? So yeah. the airline is still um, legally responsible for um, for paying. So them. heavily rooted in organizations and their perception the customer is always right, even yeah. if they're wrong. Yep, exactly. Right? So, it doesn't matter what we think is the right thing. We will do whatever we think is consumer appropriate. Yeah, yeah it was not a learning moment for <laughs> the airlines, uh, even though it was a moment of justice, right? Um, so, and this is kind of the struggle, you know, you kind of beat your head against the door when you're kind of struggling for equality, um, you know, and, and this is true, uh, on the micro level of an individual in a workplace, but it's also true on the macro level. Yeah. And we see it, we, we've, we've done some podcasts with people around different issues, uh, in the workplace over the, over the sort of historical periods. And we see it time and again. Organizations very rarely truly learn in any way. Commercial profit-making organizations, I should say, mm-hmm. very rarely seem to learn have what you've just aptly described as have a learning moment. What they actually do is eventually really smart people figure out a way to make it financially profitable for them to have changed their practices, yeah. such as, like you say, using it as a marketing tool to the upper middle classes or to that, yeah. that aspirational period. And then suddenly it's okay. Right. Um and it, I just think that's so it's it just it's a story that we hear again and again and again about large scale organizations. Yes. And, yes, and, and that's, on, a, that's a precisely what happened with the airlines. There was never an apology moment for the AIDS crisis. Yeah. It was just we are now competing to be the world's most gay friendly airline. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. And we have that here in some of our industries, too. Yeah. It's uh, you talked about I think you said it was the gay dollar. We had the pink pound. Well, we still have apparently the pink pound. The pink pound, yes. The pink pound. <laughs> and so and it was like it was astonishing to some of the people who'd been um we have people like Peter Tatchell who were campaigning for a long period of time. And they kind of have to stare incredulously as they get invited to sort of open major LGBT rights awareness weeks or whatever they're doing uh-huh. in organizations that previously were like having massive uh, protests outside them because of their discrimination. Right. And it's like, they've just, they, it's like, oh, we want you all to forget that right now and we want to move on. Yeah, and we'll get a bus with a rainbow on it. I think that seems to... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, they particularly like a bus with a... Ra- we like buses generally in this country, as Boris is showing us, but we really like a bus with rainbows on it. Um, although, to be fair, actually, one of the loveliest things about the history of Pride in UK is how much it's moved away from a protest and how much it's moved towards a celebration. And that's not in yeah. itself. That's not, that's, I don't mean that's good. What I mean is yeah. it's amazing how many straight people come now yeah. and it's seen as a celebration of where we are. 
Yeah, in Washington, D.C., where I also live when I'm not in Kansas, um, you know, we, I've been impressed with um, Capital Pride, which is the group that organizes it. You know, obviously the, the sponsorship money comes from corporations and wealthy folks and so forth. Um, but when they put a street party together, um, you see so many different types of people, young people, people of color, people who don't, you would never see, uh, feel comfortable in the kind of the, the, the men's gay bars, right. Which kind of yeah. tend towards a, a restricted, um, clonish type of personality. That's not who necessarily, what I, what I'm excited about is that pride is for more, uh, types of, of queer folks than, than that. You know, yeah, and, and it's done. It's definitely we. I see it here, and I see it when I've been. Yeah, and babies, too. and Lovely. you know, all this is just a very different type. Um, of thing. Yeah, and and it so, is more inclusive and welcoming. So, so that that kind of brings us quite neatly onto kind of where we are now mm -hmm. in terms of your experience. How are we seeing? Are we done? Like, is there anything that we still need to do? Are there issues that still crop up? Or um, you, I think it's really interesting. You mentioned that theoretically there could be people still on the payroll, yeah. right? That's that's a yeah. great example of a lingering. Is there anything else that you see cropping up in our current world? In the U.S., we we have a big lingering thing that we didn't get that would be really important, um, and that is um, in most places in the United States, you can still be fired or denied. Uh, employment because you're lesbian, gay, transgender, or bisexual, right? Um, and this is maybe uh, an accident. I mean, how can you have, you know, gay marriage and not have, you know, the right to work? Um, it, it's it's somewhat accidental. And uh, oddly, the, there is a case before the Supreme Court right now. It's being uh, deliberated, and the decision will probably be out by June of 2020 um, mm. about whether, in fact, this old civil rights law that Martin Luther King <laughs> helped pass in 1964 actually covers uh, gay men and lesbians and transgender uh, individuals from discrimination in employment. And, um, and you know, I... I honestly think that the Supreme Court, given who's on it today and, and also just the, the trickiness of the law involved, will probably continue to deny um, that LGBT folks have the same right to access to employment as others. Um, we need um, the Congress to pass a very clear law in this country that forbids discrimination based on sexual orientation or gender identity. And um, we were super close uh, for a couple of years um, under the Obama years. Uh, and I think we're further away from that moment now. But um, so, yeah, so, there's, there's things to do. And I, I think, you know, uh, the fact that we got marriage before we got the right to work, uh, that's not great because it also means that um, – that we kind of skew towards a middle class or an even upper middle class agenda, right? The, the yeah. right to marry before we care about the right to put food in our mouths, right? Yeah. A roof over our heads and food on the table. Mm -hmm. And so just look, I know, I know you said it, but I'm just going to be really clear. So for some of our audience, particularly our UK audience, this might be quite surprising. So what you're saying is that it is theoretically possible in the United States today that you can be fired if you are for being uh, lesbian, gay, etc., and that may not be illegal. Is that right? That is correct. Yes, we yeah. we have different. We have at least three different levels of government in this country. Yeah. Uh, the biggest one is the federal government. There are no protections for people who are LGBT. No work protections for people who are LGBT on the federal level. On the yeah. state level, of which we have, you know, 50, give or take, because we also have the District of Columbia and Puerto Rico, um, we it depends on the states. About mm -hmm. half of the states have, have written legislation that protects LGBTQ workers, and about half do not. And then even in those states that don't have those protections, the third layer of government is your local city or county or whatever. 
so I live in Kansas, right? Uh, part-time. Um, the state of Kansas has no protections for private sector workers, though the state government has committed to, to protecting people who are LGBT, including myself, from being fired based on my sexual orientation. But um, the city where I live in, the little town in Kansas, uh, it's called Manhattan, Kansas. We call ourselves the Little Apple because we're quite smaller, <laughs> quite a bit smaller than the other Manhattan. That's nice. Oh, uh, I love that. <laughs> but we do have certain protections for workers who are LGBT. So if we don't have anything on the federal level, half the states have it. And then even in the bad states, if you will, um, some cities and counties have protections. But it is still happening, and this is part of the, these court cases that are before the Supreme Court now, where people are still getting fired for no other reason than that they are lesbian, gay, bisexual, or transgender. Wow, that's a uh, okay. That's quite. A bo- I honestly, and I, I guess I had read about some of the court cases going on, so I guess on some level I knew that was. Yeah. why they were happening but the reality of it still existing in a number of places and quite a significant number and, of places and still being is, decided on from a legality perspective well debated yeah, that's debated. what i yeah. consistently yeah. shocks me like this is a conversation that we're still having yeah yeah okay. i mean if you think of the impulse of discrimination right um is is first to eliminate that which you are opposed to and if if you can't do that then at least make it completely invisible from the public sphere mm. Yeah. And I think in the 1950s that the discrimination against uh, LGBT folks was so powerful that um, there was an almost complete elimination from the public sphere, including the yeah. sphere of work, which is um, the most essential, if you will, public um, display that each of us has, right? We go mm-hmm. out of the house to make money. Yeah. Um and now, you know, it's, it's 2020 as of yesterday. Um, and, you know, that's still the battle of how, how much access can we have to the public sphere, right? Um, wow. And there are still are people, uh, though I think their numbers are much in decline, um, there are still are people who would like um, LGBTQ folks to be completely invisible from the public sphere. Yeah, of course. So I think, sadly, I think we might have run out of time. Yeah, sure. Um, But that has been a very brief but brilliant uh, place to start the conversation and learning around the history. And I think think it would be really useful if we could, maybe you'd like to share with people how they could find out about more about your research and the book you mentioned earlier, if they want to sort of continue their learning journey on this. Yeah, so I, I when I wrote Plain Queer, I wrote it to sort of be not a, a more interesting textbook than a textbook for the 20th century LGBT movement in the United States. So that might be a good place to start. The book, again, is called Plain, P-L-A-N-E, Queer. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff after the, the colon. But uh, And my name is Phil T. Meyer. That's T-I-E-M-E-Y-E-R. But it's uh it's available on Amazon or uh, any sort of um, ebook seller. It's also there's a an electronic version as well as paper and hardcover. Um, but uh, and there's been so much good work from other historians who now uh, have found just a growing field and a growing openness in academia to uh, to teaching and and writing about LGBTQ history. So. Um, you know, if, if you're interested at all, uh, get in, get started and, and then read the footnotes and the, <laughs> and find yeah, out yeah. other great books by hey, other wonderful there's, people. There's, there's literally no better place to start than a reference list from someone else's book, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's yeah, always absolutely. a good place to start. <laughs> Excellent. Well, you know what, Phil, it's been a huge pleasure chatting to you. As Jane said, that was a really interesting uh, and engaging overview of the history of the LGBT community um, in the world of work. So thank you for that. It's been a pleasure. Sure. It was a delight to, to speak with you both. Okay. So you're back with us. That was our conversation with Phil. What did you think? Any big takeaways? Any reflections? Yeah, I guess I, look, I, I said, it, I've already said it in the episode, but I, I know rationally that there are still battlegrounds legally in the US 
but it still hits me like a ton of bricks when I realise that someone can be fired for being gay in the US. And that's legal and that's okay. There's nothing that they can do to stop that. I, I can't really get my head around that. Yeah. And, and you know, something that we didn't have a chance to explore in the episode because of the time is that despite those challenges, we're, we're discussing the US and the UK, which compared to some places in the world are hugely progressive, despite um, the fact... Oh, yeah, without question. I mean, there's still... Death penalty still exists in certain places yeah. for practicing homosexuality. Yeah, right? I and mean, it's an incredible... <laughs> that is a thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, had a, yeah I had a conversation with someone the other day about how when you're a member of the LGBTQ community, you do think about that before you travel. You yeah. do think, oh, I'm just going to Google and check if this yeah. country is okay with me. Yeah. I, I had a great conversation not so long ago with somebody who um, is a clinical director at a hospital. Yeah. And they bring doctors to the UK from around the world. Yeah, yeah. And when they are bringing people to visit their hospital and to embed them for part of their stay, yeah. one of the first things they do is they take them to a big LGBT wall. Yeah. yeah. And, and explore that with them and, yeah. and ask questions like, why do you think we have this on our wall? Yeah. Um, and try and use that to grow understanding of yeah because it's a real shock to the system for people it coming really into work in the uk and the us yeah. and in europe yeah well one of the big takeaways for me from that episode was um the reflection about the i guess the time lag to some extent between public sentiment and public opinion mm. and legislation and regulation and i think that's really interesting um and it, it, it's relevant i think for a lot of the things that we do and for me one of the key takeaways there is that public opinion really matters mm. and public voice really matters and where we see challenges that prevent inclusion or support discrimination at the minute, public opinion can change those. It might just need another 20 years. Yeah, and I would I would say, if anyone's interested in that, looking at the history of the Irish referendum mm-hmm. on same-sex marriage is an astonishingly great example of how the public sentiment was used to make a really important argument to change their society. Yeah. Well, we hope you enjoyed the episode. We yeah. had a great time chatting to Phil, um, and hopefully we'll get to chat to him again. Yeah, and we'll see you guys all soon. Thanks, everyone. Hi. Thanks for listening to this episode of the World of Work podcast. To learn more about what we do, please check out our website, www.worldofwork.io, where you can read some great articles, learn more about the seminars and courses that we deliver, or even support us if you wish through our Patreon page. That's www.worldofwork.io. Thank you. Thank you.